0: We will be reading together now from the book of Isaiah as we continue going through this prophecy in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 10. We'll be reading some verses all the way to chapter 11, verse 5. I'll be choosing some passages as we read. We begin in Isaiah 10, verse 5. O Assyrian, the rod of mine anger and the staff in their hand is mine indignation. I will send him against a hypocritical nation and against the people of my wrath will I give him a charge to take the spoil and to take the prey and to lead them down like the mire Of the streets. And on to verse 11. Shall I not as I have done unto Samaria and her idols. So do to Jerusalem and her idols. And one detail here. This this is how the king of Assyria is talking. And God reminds us of his own words of the king of Assyria. And this is to explain why the king of Assyria himself will be punished. So verse 11 again. Shall I not, as I have done unto Samaria and her idols, so do to Jerusalem and her idols? Wherefore it shall come to pass that when the Lord hath performed His whole work upon Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, I will punish the fruit of the stout heart of the king of Assyria and the glory of His high looks. For He saith... By the strength of my hand I have done it, and by my wisdom, for I am prudent, and I have removed the bounds of the people, and have robbed their treasures, and I have put down the inhabitants like a valiant man, and my hand hath found as a nest the riches of the people, and as one gathereth eggs that are left, have I gathered all the earth. And there was none that moved the wing, or opened the mouth, or peeped. Shall the axe boast itself against him that heweth therewith? This is the comment upon the words of the king of Assyria. Or shall the saw magnify itself against him that shaketh it, as if the rod should shake itself against them that lifted it up, or as if the staff should lift up itself as if it were no wood? Therefore shall the Lord, the Lord of hosts, send among His fat ones leanness, and under His glory He shall kindle a burning like the burning of a fire. And the light of Israel shall be for a fire, and His Holy One for a flame. And it shall burn and devour His thorns and His briars in one day, and shall consume the glory of His forest and of His fruitful field, "...both soul and body, and they shall be as when a standard bearer fainteth, and the rest of the trees of his forest shall be few, that the child may write them. And it shall come to pass in that day, that the remnant of Israel, and such as are escaped of the house of Jacob, shall no more again stay upon him that smote them, but shall stay upon the Lord." The Holy One of Israel, in truth, the remnant shall return, even the remnant of Jacob, unto the mighty God. For though thy people Israel be as the sand of the sea, yet a remnant of them that return, the consumption decreed shall overflow with righteousness. For the Lord God of hosts shall make a consumption, even determined in the midst of all the land, Therefore, thus saith the Lord God of hosts, O my people that dwellest in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrian. He shall smite thee with a rod, and shall lift up his staff against thee after the manner of Egypt. For yet a very little while, and the indignation shall cease, and mine anger in their destruction. And then we go on to chapter 11, verses 1 through 5. And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. And righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins... And faithfulness, the girdle of His reins. Thus far, let us then come before the Lord and have these portions before us in God's Word. We, we have gone from chapter 10 to chapter 11 because we, we find here, if we are to, to categorize what we have read, we have the promise that there would be exile. And then we have the promise that there would be a remnant even though there would be an exile. And then chapter 11 gives the promise of this branch. And you'll remember that in chapter 4 of Isaiah, we've heard already of this branch there. There was another word in the Hebrew that was translated branch or a sprout or even a, a twig that would come forth. And, and and that was a promise of the Messiah. It was the promise of a Savior. And, and we have then this beautiful... Um, um, triad of promises, yes, the promise of exile, and yes, the promise of of a remnant that would come back out of exile, and then the promise um, of a savior of the branch and so we will we will follow that outline as we go through through these passages. The promise of exile to begin with um, there's there's like a double reality here because in chapter nine, there was the promise that Assyria would come. And take Israel into exile. That that was promised in chapter 9. It happened in the sixth year of King Hezekiah of Judah. And it was under the King Shalmaneser of Assyria. That was a final battle. The northern kingdom was not just taken into exile. They were assimilated into the into the peoples of Assyria and Syria, and some had been left in Judah and in, in Israel, but they they mixed with the people. That's where the Samaritans came from. So there was no remnant. Um, that was promised. You you can imagine there may have been souls from a lot of these people that that, that were true believers that remained faithful even during the time of Hezekiah. Remember we read of people from the northern kingdom, from Ephraim, from Manasseh, from other tribes who they they were like believers who were after and running after the word and they left Israel and went down to Judah at least to celebrate the Passover. And, And you can imagine that these families probably remained faithful. Faithful, But we don't know their stories. We, we don't see them as a people anymore. But now we find here the promise that there would be exile for Judah itself. That the Assyrians would, would continue to be a, a reproach to Judah. You can imagine Hezekiah, his fear, thinking if Israel, which is more powerful than Judah... They are more expansive. They have more um, soldiers. If they were subdued by the Assyrians, how can we imagine that that we will stand them? And so, remember, we read in Kings and Chronicles how Hezekiah trusted the Lord. He prayed and the Lord delivered. But here, there is the promise and the, the, the warning that this would happen if they were to continue in disobedience there would be a time in which Judah would be taken captive as well. And we know that that happened. It was under the king um, Sennacherib. That, well, we know that the, the assailing of Judah happened under the king of, of Sennacherib. And, but it wasn't they who took them captive. It was later Babylon. But here that the prophecy is speaking of this assailing work of the Assyrians. But then it does speak of this remnant. And we know that there is this remnant because they did end up going into exile. They went into exile under under the Babylonian empire. And and we'll talk a little bit about them. Well, first, the reason for this punishment that's important to note. You'll notice as we're going through Isaiah, there are some places where the prophet gives somewhat of a list of many things that the people are doing wrong. Here, it's really a, a... a heading that summarizes what the people were doing wrong. In, in verse um, 6, it says, I will send him against a hypocritical nation. And the Assyrians then were sent to Judah. And you go back to that reality. Okay, Hezekiah is a king. That's when they were sent. In their minds, they're very scared because the northern kingdom was taken by the Assyrians. But remember, Hezekiah was a godly king. And God had used Hezekiah to reform um, the nation of Judah. And what we see happening here is, is really a theology of God's providence. He is so gracious. He protected that people. And yet they were not a perfect people. I mean, reading some commentators, it's it's interesting. What, what seemed to have happened in Judah was that, yes, there was a reform to a great Degree, but we know it was pretty much from top down where Hezekiah was making a political reformation, a a religious reformation, but it was, in a sense, imposed upon the people. And here we have a little bit of an idea that it wasn't everybody's heart that had gone in that direction. It wasn't the hearts of the people that were all reformed. There was a reformation, but it wasn't a complete reformation. And now the hearts of the people are exposed. They're called a the hypocritical nation. And it shows that as much as we do want kings and presidents who would enact laws that are righteous, what our greatest desire is to see is the hearts of the people that are righteous. Because it's not sufficient to have a beautiful form on the outside when the inside is not right. And, and it's... It's really emphatic to think that hypocrisy is a sin that only church-going people or professing believers can commit. Because by definition, hypocrisy is someone who, who declares to profess a certain thing from the outside, but in the inside is not following suit course you can have hypocrisy in a way even among unbelievers there can be unbelievers pretending to be someone who he's not but when we're speaking of hypocrisy as a, as a religious term and as God is also condemning this nation it's because they had the outward confession of a reformed church even at the time with Hezekiah but not all of their hearts were following suit and so this is, of course, a call to each and every one of us. We, we are, by even by definition, a congregation that seeks to be conservative. We want to be careful about the things that we believe and that we live. We want to worship that is reverential, that is Christ-centered. But there's always a call upon our hearts that each and every one of our hearts would be true to the things that we're professing so that we don't run the danger of, of being a hypocritical church or a hypocritical individual inside a church. And there were many people who were hypocritical inside a nation that was, in a sense, in a time of reformation, but it wasn't perfect. Now notice also that this promise was a conditional promise. The the promise that the nation of Judah would be taken captive was contingent upon... Them continuing in sin, it wasn't final. At least the prophets would often put it that way—that there was a space for repentance. And just to give you an example, here we are in Isaiah. This was many years before Nebuchadnezzar came with Babylon and take and took Judah captive. But if you go to Jeremiah in chapter thirty-six, verse two. This is now closer to the time that Nebuchadnezzar will come. And look what we read there. Jeremiah 36.2 says, Take thee a roll of a book, God told Jeremiah to do this, and write therein all the words that I have spoken unto thee against Israel, and against Judah, and against all the nations from the day I spoke unto thee, from the days of Josiah even to this day, It may be that the house of Judah will hear all the evil which I purpose to do unto them that they may return every man from his evil way that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. God in His sovereignty knows that they will not repent and that the exile will be imminent and yet He puts it upon the people that they have this opportunity to repent. And so it was a conditional promise. It wasn't absolute that there would be an exile. It was a conditional promise. And it's, it's not a promise that you would want fulfilled. It was a promise that they would wish not to be fulfilled. And the condition would be, will repent. If you repent, this will not happen. But then this promise also contained a third thing about this promise. It contained a promise about Assyria itself. So God was going to use Assyria to punish Israel, to discipline Judah. But then after God was finished in using Israel, uh, Assyria, He would then punish Assyria for its own sins. And what He singles out is the great pride of the king. Because the king of Assyria, while God was using him for his own ends, the king of Assyria was becoming very proud and thinking that it was his hand that was so mighty and, and achieving all of this in. In verse 12, he speaks of the stout heart of the king of Assyria, the glory of his high looks. In verse 13, we, we have him talking a lot like Nebuchadnezzar before Nebuchadnezzar had that big discipline upon him. He says in verse 13, For he saith, By the strength of my hand I have done it, and by my wisdom, for I am prudent, and I have removed the bounds of the people, etc. He's attributing all of the conquests that he had been doing to himself, and not realizing that God was simply allowing him, yes, to conquer, because in God's providence... He wanted that discipline to come to Israel and to um, Judah. But there would be a moment where, where he himself would be disciplined. And when the, when the discipline comes upon him, he uses these, these two ways. He uses disease and he uses fire. And when he speaks of fire, he speaks of the forests of that land. And, and the forest becomes a figure for the soldiers... It's the idea that the soldiers are so many, they are majestic host. but just like a forest can catch on fire, so will these soldiers be um, lessened and lessened to such a small degree that even, verse 19, the idea is that even a child can count how many soldiers are left. Look at verse 19. And the rest of the trees of his forest shall be few, that a child may write them. A little child could count. How many soldiers are left. So this about the promise. Um, the, the first promise. The promise of exile. But now let's go to our second point. Where we see the promise of a remnant. And this promise was also conditional. And, and, and there's such a blessing in the element of this condition. Because that the people would come back was conditioned upon them being in exile. So you notice what God is doing. He is comforting them with the thought, if you repent, you won't even go. If you don't repent, and you go, I promise that I'll bring you back. But you see, for this promise to be fulfilled, they had to go. And so the the fulfillment... Uh, the, the, the condition to make this promise be fulfilled would have to do with the reality of their suffering. And if they found themselves in the way of suffering, that here we go, we are, we are going into exile because we fulfilled the condition of disobedience. So now we have this promise, but they could remember. But there's another promise, and the condition that we will go back is that we are going away. The very exile was the fulfillment of the condition for the promise of a remnant to return. There would be no need for a remnant if they weren't in exile. And so even as they're going in exile, God provided for them a great encouragement. Now, we need to put ourselves in the sandals of the people of Judah and how this must have been such a time of desolation because you you know the story the exile was not Assyria it was Babylon Babylon had come and had utterly destroyed the city surrounding Judah the people that could found their their refuge in Jerusalem but then ultimately Jerusalem was also destroyed the walls were broken down the temple was burnt the people were taken into exile you can imagine family members where where if not most people had died. They they don't know where each other have gone. They're, they're, They're gone into slavery. They have lost their lands. The glory of Judah. The temple has been burnt and destroyed. And how comforting it would be to their hearts that there's this promise of a return. And so that's the promise of a remnant. And let me go to our third point. The promise of a branch. So the promise of the exile, but the promise of the remnant, that's the group that would return. And boys and girls, a remnant is the idea of, of a leftover, a little group that would, that would be reserved unto God. It would be all those families who were suffering in all this persecution and this discipline, but whose hearts had been faithful to the Lord, And we can also add that there were those who maybe were unfaithful. They're now in the exile, but the Lord converted them. Now they've realized that all that God said was true. And now they're repentant. Now they're true believers. And and they're part of that remnant too. And so the remnant are the true believers that God has. And now we read about the promise of a branch. That's why I read into chapter 11. Um, and, and I just read a few verses of chapter 11. The, the, the flow that follows into ch- in the end of the chapter is that we learn here about this Savior that is promised, the branch. And then we also learn the ancestry of this Savior, that He'll come from Jesse. And, and that's monumental because that's the kingly line. Um, they, they had been suffering without a king, and now they have the promise of someone who will come from the lineage of kings. This, this is a promise that they will have a throne. And if they have a throne, they'll have a kingdom. And if they have a kingdom, they'll have progress. So this is an amazing promise of where the Savior will come from. And then the character of the Savior, the work of the Savior, and even something about the kingdom of the Savior. But today, I'll just talk in general two things that we hope to see about the promise of this branch, who is a savior, and before I say the two things specifically, just just a little detail here: the word "branch" here is another word for branch than in chapter four. It is a it is a word from which some people think um, that passage in Matthew that speaks of the Lord Jesus having been prophesied to be. Um, a Nazarene, Matthew 2.23. Some people think it's because of this passage, because the word branch here is the word netzer. And some people think that's what would have brought the thought that the Messiah would be a Nazarene from the word netzer that is connected to the word branch. Other than this passage, no one really knows exactly where Matthew 2.23 comes from. Um, In terms of prophecy and we know that he was born in Nazareth but this prophecy probably is connected to that. And the word branch, the word netzer which means also shoot, a sprout, comes in, in a very beautiful context. Because you, you notice that we, we saw that God is speaking of fire burning all those trees. And so all these trees are being burnt and cut down. And what's left over of trees that do that are the stump. Or even if, if it's dead, um, it's usually from the stump that a sprout comes forth. And this is the beautiful figure is that while there are all these trees burnt down. And you can imagine also from Judah and Israel because they're also being punished by, by the Lord. So it's all these dead trees. It's a figure of all the, all the kings have died. They've been taken into exile. All the soldiers, so many of them have died. But then there's this little sprout from where you never imagined there could be life. There will be a king. And so the picture of a sprout in, in the midst of all this desolation and where the very soldiers are figured like trees is, is, is such a beautiful figure. Um, of promise of life and of prosperity. And so, two things about this promise of the Messiah. It's a powerful promise because we see from the very beginning, look, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon Him. And every single word that follows is connected to the Spirit. It says, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And and, and we will look at all these words next time, Lord willing, but I, I just want to bring this overarching reality that this means the power and the ability that, that Christ would have. Even the divinity of the Lord Jesus is here. And you'll remember how when Jesus began His ministry... He opened the scroll of Isaiah in 61.1, which is a harmonious passage with this one, and he read, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives in the opening of the prison to them that are bound. And he began his ministry, and everything Jesus did was under the power of, and the authority, the ability of the Holy Spirit. Matthew, Henry, he says this, The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon Him. The Holy Spirit and all His gifts and graces shall not only come, but rest and abide upon Him. He shall have the Spirit not by measure, but without measure, the fullness of the Godhead dwelling in Him. So there's the promise of this Savior with power and then I just want to end with this this is an absolute promise as we looked at the first promise that there would be exile we said that was a conditional one because God was saying if you repent you will not go the second promise was also with a condition you will only have a remnant if you go into exile there's no need for a remnant if there isn't that condition that's a conditional promise too. But when we come to this promise of the branch, and there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, this promise is not conditional. It's what we call an absolute promise. It is not based upon the obedience or disobedience of Israel. It's not that if they disobey, so the Savior won't come. And it's not either if they obey, the Savior will come. No. The Savior will come. There, there is no conditions. there are no conditions. There is no merit upon Israel, there's no demerit upon Israel. There, there's no one in the whole world who could have done a certain thing that would make this promise not come or even come that that person should be praised. In, in a sense, you would say the condition had been met in a way even when sin entered the world. And we don't speak of that as a condition. we speak of it as a need. When Adam and Eve sinned, remember, God came on the very heels of that sin and said, the seed of the woman shall come. And so there was a need for this promise and God gave it. And it was absolute. It was taking years. It was taking thousands of years. But we live in the day, beloved, now 2,000 years past the day this branch has sprouted. Forth out of the shoot of Jesse. And wasn't it like this? Wasn't the story really like this? Jesus, people saw Jesus and they, they, they thought He was nothing. And that's what you think of when you see a little sprout coming from a tree. Isn't it, isn't it what comes to your mind? You, you see this gigantic tree. It's cut and then that sprout comes. You look at that sprout and you laugh because you think the sprout will never be the tree maybe it'll maybe it'll grow maybe it'll be a bush but it'll never breathe that gigantic tree that was once here you you look at a sprout and you doubt because you think it's nothing and and this is who jesus was that's why until today there are people who don't believe in him they, they see him as a, as a nothing in history they they think of him and say how could he be the messiah and yet He is the promised the, the very nothingness in the evaluation of the hearts of men should make them realize that is who He was promised to be with that beginning, with that sense of impossibility that a baby born in a manger in Bethlehem from Nazareth, yes, from Mary and Joseph, but Mary and Joseph were from Jesse. And Jesus is this promised Messiah. And He came. We we are in October, but we can start celebrating Christmas. We can already be thankful that Jesus has come. And beloved, I, I just want to end with this little fact that matters so much, especially if you were Jew, you would see how much this would matter. Because... Their great sadness was that they were going to see that their kings were going to die. It had been happening almost in a slow fashion. Josiah had been their last good king. And then Josiah's son, um, actually Josiah's brother, was Jehoahaz. He was taken captive into Egypt. And then they turned his brother Jehoiakim, a vassal king of Egypt. But then Nebuchadnezzar came and took him, Jehoiakim, bound into Babylon and left a little young boy of eight years old, Jehoiachin, to be king. Remember, we read already the prophecy that they would get to the point of needing to have a boy for a king. Well, that was Jehoiachin. He was only eight years old. He only lasted three years Three months, excuse me, in ten days, and then he too was taken captive. So sad. The Bible says that Jehoiashin, also eight years old, only did evil in the sight of God, even as a little boy. There's there's a sermon there of how you can be young and do good and not go in history as doing evil. Eight years old, but then came Zedekiah. We we know that was the last king. He he did last eleven years. He was supposed to be a vassal king, always paying tribute to Babylon. But remember, towards the end, he got tired. He stopped paying. Nebuchadnezzar came and took him. And he was captive in Babylon. And Israel, Judah, had no more kings. No more kings from the line of David. But as a faithful Jew would live on his life, remembering the prophecy of Isaiah, he would always remember this. That there would be a rod out of the stem of Jesse. A branch that would grow out of his roots. So they knew that there was a Davidic king in coming. And that was King Jesus. And he did come. And may each and every one of us be those who bow to this king. As our Savior and our Lord. That is the condition that none would ever go into eternal exile with no remnants, which is hell. But if Jesus is your King and your Lord, it is heaven forever. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank Thee, Lord, for these promises even the warnings, Lord, of great persecution and destruction for the church, if it, for, for Judah, if it were to disobey. Lord, we pray that Thou would help us to take all of the afflictions that come upon us in this world as great warnings that we would keep faithful to Thee. And we see, Lord, how the faithful themselves may suffer when there is punishment upon this world because of its sins but help us lord to be faithful help us to remember there are promises for the remnant as well and to rejoice that this king set up his kingdom that we hope to look at next time and even to consider the realities of heaven that it already exists and shall forever exist and that that is the kingdom, Lord, that we look for and that we are citizens of even now. We pray, Lord, bless all our prayers as we bring them before Thee, as we consider, Lord, and plead in many special ways, Lord, for the mourning family of the Vandivreeds, that Thou would continue, Lord, to sustain them, to bless them, to provide for them all that they need. And how we thank Thee, Lord, that Thou art a God who is near to the brokenhearted. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.